0: Good morning, church. Our reading today is taken from the book of Luke, Luke chapter 15, and we start reading from verses 11 to 32. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of state. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set up for a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to fields to feed figs. He longed to fill his stomach with parts that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my first hired men uh, put to his bed? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servant, Quick, bring the best rope and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the patterned calf and kill it. Let's have a peace and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the Patent Culp because he has him back safe and sound. The older son, the older brother, became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never give me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the patent calf for him. My son, the father said, You are always with me and everything I have is yours, but you are to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, it really is such a delight to be with you. Will you join me for a sentence of prayer? Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, I do pray now that the, the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I'd like to thank Alice for that fabulous selection of songs you've really studied uh, the passage so carefully, and it's clearly inspired you. And it's not only inspired Alice, this story, to choose uh, s- such appropriate songs, but it's also inspired some of the th- most famous and finest paintings. So, hopefully, a painting by Rembrandt uh, called The Return. Yes, there it is. It's, it's up there. Any chance of those lights going off, or would it plunge you into darkness if we did that? I'm so demanding, aren't I? Such a lovely. Um, so there are famous paintings, uh, there's a famous uh, sculpture by Rodin, and Kenneth Clarke said of this painting, he said, if you ever see it, it's the original in the Heritage, Expert, uh, uh, Heritage Museum in St. Petersburg, you would conclude it's the greatest painting ever. Well, that's, that's his claim. Uh, it's also, uh, this story has in- inspired many musical Compositions from Benjamin Britten's music drama to Debussy's opera and a touching oratorio by Arthur Sullivan. And any number of film directors, novelists, have attempted to capture this story that we've just had read so, so well too. It's because it's, it's, a, it's a timeless story. It's a human story. It's, it's our story um, about how we search for pleasure, search for true meaning as we try and spend our so-called inheritance. But central to the story, and this is something Rembrandt gets so clearly, is the father. He is the central figure, the big man with with the red shawl, uh, the cloak leaning over, the prodigal, the lost son, welcoming him with with big, wide-open arms and hands tenderly embracing him. It's about a father searching the horizon for his lost son. And the central characters in the story that Jesus has told, and this is the first time the story is ever told it 's Jesus' story um, we have so called older sons and they're portrayed by the, the chap on the right in the robe, looking very pharisee like looking down not with joy at his brother coming home, but somewhat judgmentally. You see the religious leaders have a problem with Jesus doesn't he know that these tax collectors and sinners. They've rebelled. They've spent the inheritance. They're not good Jews. They've betrayed God, their father. So what on earth is Jesus doing spending time with them? Why is he hanging out with them? Answer, he's longing to bring them home. He wants to bring them home to a place of forgiveness and restoration and love and acceptance. Do you ever feel insufficient? Do you ever feel like you're suffering imposter syndrome? I know quite a few people uh, for whom that is the case. I mean, you wouldn't be surprised that that's not how I'm wired. I'm just such a blagger. I always think, you know, it's great for me to be here or whatever else it is. But my wife is much more, yeah, I get what that means. Perhaps with a niggling doubt that maybe you're not really welcomed into God's family. Has God made a mistake? Would I really be welcomed in? Now, how do we judge whether we're of value to God? Well, how do we judge whether anything is of value? I think simply, if you lose it, how do you respond? Do you go searching for it? And if you find it, are you pleased? I mean, if you lose a a tissue out of your pocket, well, that's not even a tissue, is it? But if you lose a tissue out of your pocket, you're not going to mount a major search to find it. But if it's a 200 rand note... or or a wedding ring that you've dropped on the beach, or even worse, your day on the busy beach, you lose your five-year-old, you mount a big surge. And boy, oh boy, do you rejoice when something precious is found. Now in the story, doesn't matter what it is, it might be a sheep, and many of the Pharisees who were listening to Jesus had their money tied up in sheep, And that's not dissimilar, is it, to to many rural farmers in Africa. Uh, Or whether your money, um, or whether you lose a coin. You mount a search, and when you find it, you rejoice. And you say, hey, come and join in, I'm so thrilled. Let alone when a son is lost and is found. So in verse 24, this is the point. This son of mine was dead and is alive again, verse 24. He was lost and is found. So let's have a big celebration. Let's have dancing. So the point Jesus is making is that just as we know how to recognize something of value, when we lose it, we mount a search. When we find it, we have a great big party. Well, Jesus' point is this, verse 7 and verse 10. In the same way says Jesus. They'll be rejoicing. There'll be a big party in front of God with the angels in heaven when one of these younger sons, these undesirables, comes home. Wow. No one is beyond being of value to God. He looks out upon all of us here in this congregation and he loves us with a fierce and a loyal love. And he says to all of us, come home. Come home. Now, here's the warning. The story reveals uh, the state of our hearts. It's, it's, It's really all about hearts. It's not about morality. It's not a morality tale, which is what the Pharisees want it to be about. But it's all about our hearts. And our hearts reveal what is most important. The younger son's heart, where is it? It's not at home with the father, is it? It's already in the far Country where there's sex and drink, freedom to do whatever he wants. And it would be pointless of the father to try and stop him, to hold him back, because we all find a way to do what we want to do, what our heart wants to do. We find the opportunity eventually. And so he wants to go a long way from home and have a big sin up. And that's pretty hard to do, isn't it, under the family roof. So he goes as far away from home as he can, the far country. So, the behavior of both sons reveals where their heart is, reveals whether we really do love and trust in God as our Father, whether we want to live and work with Him and for Him. So, who are the people coming to Jesus in this story? They're the younger sons, they're the tax collectors, they're the sinners. Who are the people most hardening <laughs> their hearts? They're the churchgoers. They're the really righteous people who are looking down at their noses at those Jesus is accepting. So it's obvious that the younger son is a long way from his father. He's gone off to a far country. And in terms of proximity, in terms of physically where the older son is, he's with the father. But is his heart really with him? Did you notice in the reading in verse 29 that he's kind of working for his father out of a, not out of love and respect, but he's saying, you know, I've been slaving away for you. That's not very loving and respectful. And he thinks his dad's an, a, a kind of an ungrateful fool. And he effectively says in verse 30, this son of yours is a younger brother of mine. He spends all your money, our money, the inheritance on prostitutes. And then as soon as he comes home, what? You spend even more money on him. You slay the fattened calf. You put a ring on his finger. You tell me to come and celebrate. Well, I won't. So who is the furthest from his father? Well, look at the picture. Who's the closest to the father? It's full of surprises, isn't it, this story? And it's only when the younger son comes back to his father that we discover in the story that the older son has this self-righteous and judgmental spirit. So it's a really powerful story. It cuts very deep. Question, who are you most like? Are you most like the younger or the older? Are you rebellious? Younger son or sensible, older son? Are you naturally police officer or bandit? Are you poacher or gamekeeper? Older, respectable child or rebellious second-born? Well, for Richard Cunningham, me, there's never been any doubt. I'm literally second-born, and I've always behaved as a second-born. I'm bandit, poacher, all rolled into one. And I always knew I was bad, and my parents, everyone knew I was bad. Why? Because I always got into trouble. Here's just a tiny snapshot. My older sister Jane, during the middle school years, from 11 to 13, we were at the same school together, And she was a prefect, they had prefects at this middle school, and she was, you know, in her kingdom in the dining hall. And I was at a table, and the monitor on the table was giving me a hard time throughout the meal. And just as he collected the the, the plates on our table, the dirty plates, and walked off to take them to the kitchen, he said something really mean to me, and it pressed all my buttons. And I just flew at him and hit him with a good right to the chin. And the plates went... Uh, I'll never forget it. The plates and all the slops went into the air. It seemed to take forever. Nobody had noticed anything until everything came crashing down. My sister was pretty ashamed of me, and I don't blame her. The day I heard the gospel message, I will never forget it. It was such good news. Now, for my sister, she'd heard the gospel a year before, and, you know, it was much harder for her to embrace it. It took her a full year, and she was understandably reluctant to introduce me to these really nice, respectable people. But she did. And I remember where I was when I first heard the gospel message. So I'm getting emotional. It's the story, it's the painting, it's it's these lovely people in front of me. I was sitting in a kitchen. In this big country house, it was a lovely country kitchen where it became a second home to me and many other teenagers uh, for many years. And that's where, sitting in that kitchen, looking at the pots and pans hanging down from the ceiling, I heard Mavis Brown explain that God in Jesus had come down from heaven and had gone searching for people like me. And God had loved us so much that he sent Jesus to die for us. And it was just obvious that this was the path for me. My whole heart went out to it. Now, it took my sister, like I say, much, much longer because she was so good that I recognised much more easily my need. Now, the great thing about this story, I think the reason we love this story is the arc of it. It's all about resolution. We ate for resolution. Unless you're really bitter and twisted, you want a film with some resolution, don't you? You, if you're emotionally invested in the characters, you want the story up to bring them to some sort of resolution. It's often a child coming, being reunited with a parent, or unrequited love suddenly uh, being requited, and so on and so forth. Now, music buffs, I hope I get, I'm getting this right, because I have no clue what I'm talking about. Music, music buffs will sometimes comment on how a piece of music uh, returns to its original key after swirling around elsewhere for a while you can tell i don't know what i'm talking about <laughs> and apparently musicians refer to this as coming home now even somebody as ignorant as me about music really appreciates that sense of resolution when i think oh now i like the bit before this oh well, it's got a bit lost now. ah oh, there it is and and there's that sense of resolution Well, if the prodigal son were musical theatre, let me boldly suggest this is how the acts might go. Act one is home, okay? We're not told much about home, so we kind of almost have to imagine it. But the really important point is that it's with the father and there is all that's needed, food, love, protection. Now, that's our human story. We've been made by God for God and he's given us all that we need. That's home. The, the second act is sick of home in the story. The younger son can't wait to get away from all the restrictions, get away to the far country. And then act three is away from home. There he can really pursue his heart's desire, just be, be chasing his own appetites. But then something happens. Mainly his money runs out. And he becomes homesick. He reflects on where his heart is. And then Act 5, he comes home. That's the ark. So that's home, sick of home, away from home, homesick, home. Not very complicated, is it? We'll leave that there. So if you wonder where I am in terms of the verses and everything else, I'm not deliberately not going to refer to them. So we'll just feel the sense of the story. But if you want to check but I haven't drifted away from the story. Do look at those verses. Okay, in our musical theatre, we're at home. It's a scene of security and love, meaningful work within the family business. I don't know whether you've ever read Laura Ingalls' Wilder, um, Little House on the Prairie, or maybe you're familiar with Marilyn, Marilyn Robinson's book called Home. And you just think of, you know, sort of a lovely big veranda, rocking chair, lots of food, lots of love, meaningful work to do. It's not easy, but it's a good life. And here the music would probably be warm and comforting, uh, but we rapidly move to act two. Why? Because straight away, the younger son, we realize, is sick of home. He asks his father for his share of the inheritance now, effectively saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. I don't want to be with you. I don't even want you. I want your money. I want my money. I want my share of the inheritance now. And Jesus tells us that that's effectively what we all do to God. We take the life he gives us, the talents he gives us. We occupy our footprint on his beautiful blue planet. So I don't want you. I want what's mine. I want my inheritance now. So here, I imagine the cadence is uh, faster The music is more impatient. It's really getting swirly now, okay? And perhaps we can imagine this young man singing these lines. It's time to see what I can do. To test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. And boy, does he let it go. And The text is discreet, apart from telling us that he consorted with prostitutes. So there we are, already... I've not been speaking for many minutes from these sections. We're already away from home. Verses 13 to 16. So the prodigal exchanges boring home-cooked food for the exotic tastes of a distant country. And rather than settling down with his sweetheart, he consorts with prostitutes until his money and therefore his friends run out. We crave independence, don't we? We crave to be away from the God we think is re- constrains the things we most want to do. Why? Because we believe it will make us happy. But our detachment from God, our running away from God, lands us in, in, in slavery. Slavery to the gods of gut and groin, slavery to the passions. And we lose connection with the very purpose for which we were made. As Bob Dylan put it, you've got to serve somebody. You've got to serve somebody. So who are you serving? Who are you serving? And as long as we remain away from home, away from God, there'll be no resolution, there'll be no satisfaction, according to Jesus, because we were made for relationship with God, with our Father. That's the very reason you and I were made. If we run away from him, take our little bit of earthly inheritance, then it will end up eating pig food. Unless, unless, we can come to our senses and come home. If we don't come home, Jesus says we'll be lost now and lost forever. So it's a very urgent appeal. So act four, Homesick. Wow. He's homesick. C.S. Lewis, uh, the the writer of the Narnia Chronicles, would often talk about an inconsolable longing uh, that all human beings have because we're made in God's image. And I don't know whether you can remember something really unique that happened. Not necessarily unique, but there are just some memories of the past that come back to you almost like stabs of joy. And it kind of takes you back. And they they, they wake up that inconsolable longing. It might have been your first South African sunset. Perhaps at Camps Bay, sundowners. Maybe you've got really used to that kind of sight. Falling in love for the very first time. The the birth of your child. Or that marvellous summer evening. You're young, it's the summer holidays. You're surrounded by family and friends and cousins. And there's loads of food and your parents are not looking at the clock. It's like that day is going on forever. Do you know what I mean? And you think, I'm going to hold on to that. I'm never going to lose that memory. And C.S. Lewis calls these things, the things that wake up, that that stir this inconsolable longing. And he says the important thing is to remember that those stabs of joy, those memories, whatever they are, are not the things we're meant to try and, recapture and go back to because if we do that we'll despair. There's signposts pointing away. Wordsworth, the romantic poet, he remembers a time when he was a little boy sitting on Ashness Bridge and his feet were dangling over the side and all was carefree and the sun was on him and he saw the dappled light on the water. And throughout his life he and other romantic poets and painters try to recapture those moments, they, they, they had this inconsolable longing. Maybe we'll find it in nature, not wear shoes, feel the sun on our faces, the, 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 the sand between the toes, whatever it is. What they didn't realize is that the inconsolable longing they felt was a signpost. It wasn't trying to suck you into the memory. The memory itself was a remembering of something else. It was pointing away. Where was it pointing? Home. It was pointing home. Here's what C.S. Lewis says about this, and the quote should come up. It is the inconsolable secret in each one of you, the secret which hurts so much that you take your revenge on it by calling it names like nostalgia and romanticism and adolescence. It is a desire for something that has never actually appeared in our experience. Our commonest expedient is to call it beauty and behave as if that settled the matter. Wordsworth's expedient was to identify it with certain moments in his own past. But all this is a cheat. If Wordsworth had gone back to those moments in the past, he would not have found the thing itself, but only the reminder of it. What he remembered would turn out to be in itself a remembering. The books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust to them. It was not in them, it only came through them. And what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshippers. They are not the thing itself, they are only the scent of a flower we've not found. The echo of a tune we've not heard. News from a country we've never yet visited. Wow, so powerful, isn't it? And Jesus says, at last, the younger son's heart was homesick. He had those memories. He knew where there was love and good food and acceptance. He knew where his heart was. He knew where the signpost was taken. But... The sign home, the road home, is not an easy one for him, is it? Look at the state he's in. He's a Jewish boy. He's like feeding pigs. He'd even eat their food if he could. He's squandered all his father's money. He's broken up the estate. He's spent all these months with prostitutes. So the road home is going to be a hard one for him. He's got to swallow his pride. Repentance isn't easy, is it? We're so proud that even though we're on a path to hell, to ultimate lostness, we can't easily bring ourselves to admit our need. Even though the longing is great, even though the signs all point home, the road to home is repentance. The longing might be the motivation, but the route to home is repentance. And Jesus gives us three elements to the younger son's repentance. The first is in verse 17, where it says he comes to himself or comes to his senses, That is, he properly thinks about who he is. He finally wakes up. He changes his mind about his circumstances, who he is, who his father is. So that's the first step of repentance, to actually come to our senses, to think properly about ourselves and our situation and God, discovering who we are, for what purpose we've been made, Running from God is senseless because it's running away from ourselves, from the purpose for which we were made. Now, if you think coming home to God is going to squash your personality, it's going to somehow destroy who you really are, you could not be more mistaken. Because when you come home, you discover the one who made you and the one for who you were made. I think some people imagine if they become a Christian, they're going to be sent to some awful country they don't like as a missionary and and made to eat food that they find indigestion and marry somebody they don't find attractive. Nothing could be further from the truth when we think of the character of our almighty God. The great African Bishop Augustine said this, God has made us for himself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. So great, thank you. The microphone's restless as well <laughs> It's come home at last. That's good. So the second part of repentance, if the first part is coming to ourselves, coming to our sen- senses, the second part is seems to be um, an act of humility and an admission of a deep sense of unworthiness before God. Verse 18 I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. So repentance contains this deep sense of how horribly offensive our attitudes, our hearts are to God. Reflected in the behaviour but it's primarily the heart that God sees. It's our rebellious hearts whether they're self-righteous like the older son or quite obviously self- Centred in, in a pleasure-seeking way like the younger son. We have no rights before God. And the son realises the hurt he's caused. And he's deeply humbled and repentant. So if the first part of repentance is coming to our senses, coming to ourselves. The second part is humbly acknowledging our guilt and the pain we've caused to God. Well, the third part is what? Verse 20 that we do it that we just do it because he was there reflecting on how bad he'd been how good home was but if he just sat by the roadside looking at the route home with this inconsolable longing but didn't put one foot in front of the other it would do him no good so we've got to come home and it's an act of the will just like getting married is an act of the will Obviously, you act upon your feelings. One hopes you have a longing for the person you're about to marry. But there comes a point where you have to say, I will. I mean, just imagine when I was married to Ruth 35 or so years ago, and we're standing, and I'm about to say my vows, and I'm asked, Richard, will you take this woman to be your wedded wife? I may have told you this illustration before. And I say, Hmm, yeah, I think I really love her. And the vicar, the, the pastor says, Will you take her to be your wedded wife? Well, you know, I think it's going to work out. We really do get on well. um, But you never be sure, can you? You know, life is a very long time. And in sickness, oh, not really been that. Will you take this woman to be. uh, I will. And then, of course, the vicar then turns to Ruth and says, Will you take this blithering idiot to be your lawful wedded husband? And she sensibly, well, in the sense of getting on with it, says, I will. Now, maybe we're worried about making ourselves vulnerable to God. Maybe we see the signpost pointing home. We know it makes sense of who we are, the inconsolable longing within. But maybe we're worried about the reception. What's the reception? Is God just going to rub our noses in it? Ah, I told you you were going to end up like this. I told you you'd come to no good. Is that what we see in this story? Verse 20, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. Filled with compassion for him and he ran to his son. This was indecent. You're not meant to do this. He lifts his skirts and he runs towards his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. If we can go back to the Rembrandt painting, that would be super This was indecent behaviour. The son says, I'm not worthy to be your son. And what does the father do? He's got this pre-rehearsed speech. He really means it, but he's rehearsing it because he really wants to show his father how humble and repentant he is. But he can't even get his speech out. The father says, nonsense, my son. None of this talk of servants. You're not my servant. You're my son, and I love you. Come on. Look, you've got no sandals on your feet. Let's put sandals on his feet. Let's put a ring on his finger. Let's slay the fatted calf. Let's have drinking. Let's have celebration. Son, you were dead, but now you're alive. That's the reception you'll get if you take that walk home. What would ever stop you from coming home to your heavenly father? God's love for us is deeper than the deepest love of a a parent for a lost child. But perhaps we don't easily believe that God is that loving and generous. Martin Luther famously said, if I could believe that God was not angry with me, I would stand on my head for joy. Well, the forgiveness, the acceptance God offers is total. The prodigal wants to work off the debt. I'll be like a hired servant. No, no, no. He wipes the slate totally clean. For God so loved the world that he gave. He gave. He gave his only son who gave his life on the cross. He just gave. And he keeps giving. And he gives us unconditional acceptance and repentance and security and love and peace and eternal life. He just keeps giving and giving and giving. So how could we doubt God's love? When he's in that much of a hurry, when he sends his son to find the lost, how could we ever doubt? So here we are at the last act. He's home. Where are we right now? Are we looking up, seeing the signpost home? Or are we a bit more like the older brother? And perhaps thinking, you know what, this business of evangelism, of reaching the lost, you know, that's for really that's for that that's that's for sops. I mean People never really change. What is the point? They just need to just be basically good, don't they, like me? Do we see how dangerous that is? It was so many of the tax collectors and sinners followed Jesus. Few, certainly initially of the Pharisees, the religious leaders, followed Jesus. They were deeply offended by him. So the problem is our hearts. Unless we can rejoice in this rescue, unless we can love what God loves, our hearts are very far from him. Can we rejoice in this story? Some years ago, Ruth and I visited uh, friends in Devon. They had this remarkable house. It was a rambly house. It even had castle turrets on it. I had no idea how many rooms it had. And they had a 10 acre garden. I had no idea what 10 acres was. And back in those days, we only had two sons at the time Ash, uh, who was aged, uh, let me get this right, who was aged eight, and Jack, who was aged three. And they just ran off, Ash and Jack, with the uh, children of our friends into the 10-acre garden. And Ruth and I uh, took afternoon tea with our eldest daughter. It was all very civilised. Until the eldest child of our friends came in and said, "Mom, Dad, Jack, Jack's fallen in the pond. And uh, I thought, oh, well, I didn't think, oh, no, I panicked. Ruth and I both panicked. What had happened is Jack had run down the hill... A long, long grassy uh, bank, and had not seen the green weed below representing a pond, but thought it was an extension. And then had fallen headlong into the middle of this pond. And so we just ran out into the garden, and it wasn't the most sensible thing in the world, but it was instinct. We shouted, "Jack!" As if that was going to help him. "Jack!" And then I heard the most beautiful sound I think I will ever hear. It was Jack screaming his head off. And what did that mean? It meant his lungs were full of air and not water. What had happened, Jack had gone headlong into the pond and Ash, quick as a flash, grabbed a ladder uh, that was, pro- was going up to a treehouse, floated it on the pond and just commando styled crawled across it and just held Jack by his collar held his head roughly out of the water, which is why Jack was shouting. He was really outraged at the rough treatment he was receiving from his older brother who's trying to save his life. What a rescue. Could our hearts not be moved by that? And the scene that evening was very homely. They were both thoroughly bathed and we had hot chocolate. And I'm not sure who we hugged most, whether it was Ash or Jack. But it's a rescue that we need to rejoice in. And if you're not rejoicing in what's taken place here in this story, then Jesus would say, you need to repent of a hard heart. You too need to come home. And there is an appeal to the older brother, come on in. It may feel like laughter in the room, that's taught, but you, everything I have is yours, says God. You may have taken it all for granted because you're in such close proximity to church and Bible and, and good living and middle class or whatever it is, but your heart's far from me, but please come in. I love you. Will you come in? And if we're the younger son, the rescue has been mounted. Jesus, if you like, just like Jack in the pond, reaches out his hand. And in the process, it actually costs him his life. All we have to do is take it. Will we take it? Or are we still living under the delusion that we're good enough? Well, that's crazy, isn't it? Why would God send his son into the world if we were good enough? What an insult to such love. That's a very foolish thing to even think for one second. Dear friends, we need to come home. I need to come home and land this sermon, which I'm doing now. You'll be relieved to know. But all of us need to come home. God has loved you all your life. And maybe when you were a child, your heart was really tender. And you knew God loved you and you loved him. But You've gone off to that far country, or you stayed kind of in the proximity of Christianity and religion, but your heart's far from God. And he says, come on in. Come on home. All is prepared. Come home. I'm going to just pray a very simple prayer, and I'm going to invite everyone, whether your youngest son or your oldest son, and the Of course, is isn't a sexist thing. It's just the way the story is told. Um, I'm going to invite you to pray this. Here's the prayer I'm going to say. Before I pray it, I'll tell you the words. It's probably the most simple prayer you could ever pray. Dear God, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm not worthy to be your son or daughter, but I long to come home. Thank you for sending Jesus to rescue me and bring me back. Please forgive me and have me back. Let's just bow our heads and I'll pray that. And I'd encourage you to reflect on who Jesus is, what he's done and the welcome his father offers. And as I say the words, you think them in your head and your heart. And God will hear this as your repentant prayer, your journey home. Dear God, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am not worthy to be your son or daughter, but I long to come home. Thank you for sending Jesus to rescue me and bring me back. Please forgive me and have me back. Amen.